You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Good morning, good morning. How are y'all doing? Good. One of you is fantastic. It's very, just like, not even loud, just like to themselves. Woo! Like that. That was great. It's great. Well, if you don't know me, my name is Ty Gaston. I'm one of the staff members here at Providence Community Church, and we're so grateful that you made us a part of your weekend. If you're a first-time guest, we, uh, we welcome you as well, and we're glad that you found us. Um, here at Providence, we are a people formed around a single and compelling vision, and that is to make the gospel unignorable in our city. And it's to that end that we teach the Bible every single week because we believe it's the only place that can teach us how to know, worship, and obey Jesus. And so this, uh, this morning... We're going to be continuing our series called A Life Together, where we are exploring Ephesians chapter 4 through 6, and really talking about what it looks like for you to apply, um, apply the faith to your life, especially in the midst of biblical community. And so for us, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there with me. If you do not have a Bible, I encourage you to grab one of the ones located in the seats in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, you can call your own. Consider that a gift from us to you. Uh, So again, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. If you have a Bible, if you can and are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Again, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 says this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I want to say thank you so much for making us a part of your week, especially if it's your first time. Uh, We're grateful that you're here, and uh, we hope someone's had a chance to grab you and welcome you, let you know a little bit about who we are. Um, So this morning, we're going to begin the last chapter in the book of Ephesians. Like Ty said, we've been walking through the back half, chapters 4, 5, and 6 in this series called uh, Life Together. So we've been talking about how does the church, uh, how is the church called to live life together in a way that honors Christ and loves and honors one another. And so um, this morning, we get to kind of follow up on last, uh, the last two weeks where Paul's talked about husbands and wives, and Paul's now going to talk about parents and children. So we're going to talk a little bit about being kids. We're going to talk a little bit about being parents. And the good news is that even, like, I know a lot of you are parents, but even if you aren't a parent in the room, we're all children, and not just children of God, but you came from somewhere, okay? And so we get to talk a little bit about this Hopefully it'll be helpful. But before we do, I'd love to pray and, and pray for us. And so if you'll bow your heads with me, let me do that. Father, thank you that we get the privilege to come before you boldly and call you our Father. That you sent your son Jesus, that through his precious blood, we've been adopted into your family. Thank you that what that means for us is almost infinite in relation to its blessings. And that now we can come to you humbly and ask that your word might shape us and mold us in such a way that we would not only receive that gift of being your children, but also that we would receive it in such a way that shapes how we behave, how we think, how we see the world, how we act, how we speak, how we parent, and how we honor our parents. We thank you for this institution that is family, that there is so much joy even through the difficulties and dysfunction that sin brings. And we ask now that we might go to your word and that, Holy Spirit, you would even begin now to soften our hearts, help us to hear, give us ears to hear that we might leave out of here not only with more joy, but that we might leave out of here being made more like you in some unique way that you have desired. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. 
All right, let's read Ephesians chapter number six. I'm just going to read the first three verses here. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So Paul quotes Exodus here, and I want to bring to your attention something as an aside, and I thought that it would be important that we mention this before we dive in, because it's happened so often in this series, but it happens often anytime we read the New Testament, and it's this, that when you read the New Testament, what you'll find is that all of the authors of the New Testament have a very in-depth knowledge of the Old Testament, and often, frequently, including Jesus, maybe mostly Jesus, quote the Old Testament when they teach. And so what happens here is Paul's assuming, like he did last week when we talked about Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 or 22, I believe, when he quotes that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave only to his wife, and he quotes Genesis, that Paul's doing it here again. He's quoting from Exodus Moses' words that were etched on tablets of stone when Moses went up on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments from God. If you're a little bit older, you've watched the Charlton Heston movie, you remember this, okay? If not, YouTube, it's gold. He goes up onto the mountain and he gets these commands from God. One of them is honor your father and mother. And he quotes that here when he tells the children to obey their parents. Now I mention that as an aside to say, without at least at bare minimum a rudimentary knowledge of what the Old Testament talks about, it's really hard to understand the New Testament. And then sometimes, sometimes we can even be offended by it or get it wrong because we don't understand what is being said here. The foundational understanding here is that God has set forth not just the institution of marriage, but the institution of the family, and that God has a design and a desire for how the family is supposed to operate and work, and in that family unit, he desires that children would obey and honor their parents. He gives us this with the Ten Commandments. Now, I love that Paul says this is a the first commandment with a promise. Now, I want to point out there's really a supernatural and a practical element to this promise, The supernatural element is that because God has numbered all of our days, only God can truly give a promise like I will allow your days to things to go well with you and for your days to be long on the earth. God can is the only one that can give that and he does. It's his promise. But I also want to point out there's a practical element to this promise and it is this. If you're a young person in the room, if you only understood how many of the rules your parents set out have really one or two purposes alone, it would baffle you. And those one or two purposes are this, to keep you alive is number one, and, and that you might act, things might actually go well with you in the long run. Not like go well with you, like it got you a slushy and you know, it, it worked out you know, whenever we went to the gas station. But like if they say no to the slushy, it's like so that you'll sleep at night. That's a wellness issue. So this is practical. God's saying if you honor and obey your parents, that there comes with that, that things would go well with you in life and that you would live longer, meaning that most parents set up the rules and require obedience just to keep you alive and things go well. Think about it. How many rules are like that? How about rules about the pool? Don't play tag in the front yard and run out into the street. It's a solid rule. How about food? My child, if my son got to decide whatever he wanted to eat, he'd always eat ice cream. It would never be another option. He would only eat that. And then he would, you know, lead himself into pediatric diabetes as quickly as possible. That's the way he rolls, okay? How many rules do your parents set up for this? I would say it's a, it's a ton of them. It's many of the rules that your parents set out. So what are the two words that Paul speaks of when he speaks to children? Number one, he says, obedience, obey. Number two, he says, honor, or he quotes the Old Testament that says, honor, honor your parents. So obedience speaks to the, the word obedience, it speaks to the actions that God requires. Honor speaks to the attitude that God requires. And every parent gets this, right? It's why there are some times where your child might do that which you've told them to do, but it still irks you because why? Because the attitude wasn't there. Anybody? It's like, make the, ta- uh, you know, go, go set the table. Fine. You hear all the dishes clank around, tink, 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 you know, slamming stuff. Go clean your room. Fine. Door slams. And then, you know, whenever I was a kid, it's like Limp biscuits turned up. <laughs> Break stuff, you know, or something like that. Anyway, if you never listened to that, I'm sorry. Apologize already ahead of time. But it's when the attitude doesn't follow the action, right? Now, what we know is in the scriptures, what Jesus teaches us is that these two things are inseparable. And that oftentimes what Jesus will do is he'll get to the heart of the matter. He'll get to the heart disposition or the attitude because he knows if he can address the heart disposition or the attitude, then it ultimately will flow towards the actions. 
This is why the Ten Commandments, God says, rather than obey your father and mother, he says, honor your father and mother, because the child that honors their father and mother will obey their father and mother. Does this make sense? So what is this idea of honor, and and how does the Scripture speak of it? Well, the Scripture speaks of it in two ways. Uh, The Scripture speaks of honor in that we honor one another generally as human beings because we've been given dignity and value by the God who created us because we are all image bearers. This is why the Bible in the New Testament, Romans in particular, Paul says, outdo one another in showing honor. Well, you know, we ask the question, well, what about people that aren't honorable? And, and the point is that everyone is worthy of honor in so much as they've been created by God. Therefore, we honor one another because we're image bearers. That's general honor. Then the Bible speaks of specific honor, and it speaks of specific honor in two ways. One is you give specific honor to those whom God has given roles and responsibility to in your life that are unique, and you're called to honor them on the basis of those roles and responsibilities. You see this whenever you tell your child that they need to listen to what their teacher says in class, or you need to listen to your grandma because she knows more than you, or you, you let your child stay over at one of your friend's houses, so you, you, know, you listen to Mr. John, or else you know, these are, you're asking for honor because of a specific role that this person's going to play. The Bible also speaks about honor. We honor the people who have the giftedness or have exhibited the behaviors that are honorable. This is where the Bible says, give honor to whom honor is due, right? Now, which one of these categories does the parenthood honor fall into? It falls into the specific honor that's given on the basis of God giving the role and the authority, not, not necessarily only because that person actually exhibits honorable characteristics. The reason I say this is because sometimes what we'll see, and this happens a lot of times in uh, the West, is that young people say, well, I don't, you know, I don't want to listen to my parents because they're you know, dumb, or they, you know, they, they don't know, or they're, they're, they're silly, or they're s- they just want to control me, whatever it may be, or they don't act honorable, they don't, they don't follow uh, the rules that they set, or whatever it may be. And the scripture doesn't say, honor your father and mother only if they act honorably, because then we'd all fall short of that inevitably, and there would be no honor that would be given. But instead, it just says it on the basis of the responsibility and the role that God's given your parents, that you might honor them. Now, what we have in the, in the Eastern world or in the Western world, we operate in two different ways. And I think that what they represent is a ditch on both sides of the road that we need to be cautious not to fall into. And we need to actually find ourselves in the scriptures. So where my children are from in Kyrgyzstan, the, the societal norm is that if you are the youngest son in the family, you will never leave your parents' house even when you get married, but you will live in with your parents until they die and take care of them. That's the rule. And if you are to shirk that rule, you are shamed from society. What a shameful thing it would be that you would move out of your parents' house and leave them alone to fend for themselves in their older years. Now, that's just the way that the society works. Now, we think about the United States, and <laughs> clearly this is not the case, right? We, we focus more, whereas the Eastern world puts a high priority on family, and therefore they put a high priority on children honoring their parents for life. The Western world puts a high priority on individuality, and particularly the individuality of children from their parents as they grow older. It's why we, have, we make a bigger deal out of 18 years old. There's a, a launch. We have whole movies like Failure to Launch, which means that you never left. You know, you didn't leave your parents' house, and it's kind of a joke. It's a running joke. It's like, oh, look, that poor kid that never actually got it became an individual, you know, and actually did something with their life. If you're, if you're a person living with your parents right now, you're like, please stop. It's just, stop talking like this. I, I'm, not, I'm not shaming you. In fact, that's, that's normal in lots of parts of the world. Here's what I want to say. There's a ditch on either side of the road. On one hand, if children do not honor their parents, then they will not grow into men and women who will honor God. So if you think that I can just dishonor my parents and then I can still be a solid Christian, it just doesn't work that way. You learn to honor God as a child as you honor your parents, and that continues on. On the flip side, if parents don't learn to encourage their children to leave and cleave, then they will never be fully formed new families that are cultivated in order for those new families to have children, rear those children, and send them out to fulfill the mandate of God to be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, and have dominion over it. Or as the Bible says in Matthew 28, to go forth into all creation and preach the gospel. You won't have those family units because everybody will have this mismatch. You even see this in the book of Genesis. Like You you notice how much family dysfunction there is in the book of Genesis? It's like Jacob has Esau, and then Jacob leaves, and where does he go? He lives with Uncle Laban for a while. It's like, oh, I'm going to stay at Uncle Laban's house, and then that ends up going poorly. So then, they ha- then he meets up with Esau again. And listen, I, I want to make this clear. In the, in the early parts of Genesis, this is like ancient culture, so there wasn't like there was a lot of houses they could move into. They all lived together out of necessity because it was like, I live with Uncle Laban or I live in the desert. But I think some of it also speaks to this idea that, that, that may, there was a ditch on one side of the road that these families never actually leave and cleave to your wife. So because 
you know, Jacob never was not leaving and cleaving unto his wife and starting his own family. He had all this outside influence that actually was unhealthy. Or how about this one? Abraham, go from your father's house, from your country and your kindred, and go to the place that I will show you. Another way to put that would be like, leave your dad and mom's basement, put on some clothes, get a job, and get out of here, you know? That's one way to look at it. Okay. Now, I want to speak to the ki- children that are in the room first, because the Bible starts with children. So I want to start first with, if you're a young person in the room and you have parents that are in the room or, you know, you're still in your parents' house, speak to you first. And then I want to speak to the adults in the room, because guess what? You're still a child, too. You have parents, too. And so how do we continue to honor our parents. So a few things about honor. For the young person in the room, honor means realizing that your parents have been given this responsibility to care for you, provide for you, instruct you, and train you for life by God. That it's not that they assumed this responsibility in your life to exercise authority over you like a Xerxes in your house, but they have been given this responsibility by God and they take it seriously. It's one way to frame it that might help you. Number two, Honor means respect for the fact that your parents might know more than you currently know, maybe. And this doesn't mean that when they set out a rule for you that that means you're ignorant and childish and they're just trying to make you feel silly, that maybe they know a little bit more about life than you do and that there can be life from you recognizing that. This is especially for teenagers. What happens is, you know, getting to the teenage years, you actually do start recognizing things and learning things and and, and through that knowledge, it becomes more difficult to listen to your parents. And here's what I have seen, and, and maybe even in my own life it's true. You know, whenever you teach your, you have to teach your parents how to log into Netflix, it becomes difficult to listen to them about other things, you know? So they're like, come over here and, and teach me how to use this phone. And they're like, you push the on button, the on button, you know? And so then you start to lose this respect. But here's what I'll say. If you could recognize that maybe they've lived, they've been where you are, and then beyond it, and they might have something worth listening to that it could help you and that your life will be more joyful than always combating that thinking that you have the answers. Number three, honor means choosing to submit to your parents because ultimately you trust God. This is important, just like we talked about last week, that there's no call for submission in the Bible that doesn't ultimately redound back to God because we submit to God and therefore there are human authorities that we choose to willingly submit to because we trust God and because he's commanded it. So children, this is the same way. As you grow older and you get into your teenage years, you choose to submit to your parents because you ultimately choose to submit to God. And then number four, and this is the most practical, I think the best way to help you. One of the best ways to begin understanding your parents and make your life easier is to start learning now what it means to take responsibility for yourself and maybe for others. One of the best things that can happen, I've talked to a lot of parents about this, and I know that this might ruffle feathers, is your kid getting a job. It's helpful. I know you're probably like, I wanted to focus on their studies. I don't want to be distracted from that. And that's your own decision. But here's what I'll say. My very first job was at an ice cream or a custard shop called the Nutty Monkey. It was, yeah, it was prestigious, let me tell you. Um, (laughs) And I remember I I quickly, I got the opportunity to become a shift leader, which meant I got a 15 cent per hour raise. Yeah, I was balling. And and I remember whenever that happened, I I was given keys to the store and I was given a responsibility that now I have this shift that I'm supposed to lead. So in the morning, if I was going to open the store, there was all of a sudden a new, I couldn't just call my boss and tell him, hey, I'm going to be late. I was the boss. People were calling. And that just put a whole new element of responsibility. And it also reframed the way that I looked at my boss whenever they would call me and be like, where are you at? Frustrated at me because I was then making those calls saying, hey, where are you at? Because I was trying to lead this shift and I had disgruntled employees who were having to work double time because, you know, old Jim over there just decided he didn't want to show up on time. The thing was, I was old Jim often, but the best learning curve was me trying to take responsibility, not just for myself, but learning to take responsibility for others. Young people, I would encourage you to do this. It'll make you, ch- it'll change the way that you see your parents. Because, if, and, and listen, this may sound harsh, but it's just true. Sometimes if you don't do this as a child, you become an adult who has problems with all authority because you've never actually tried to take responsibility for anyone. You've never actually figured out just how hard it is to actually try to take responsibility for anybody but yourself. And so you just think it's easy to criticize everybody else. The moment you have to try to make those decisions and have those tough conversations, you realize this isn't easy because no one wants to be that guy. Young people, do you know your parents don't like saying no sometimes? It's crazy. Sometimes they don't want to be the ones like, hey, I'm going to punish you. It's not like they woke up and they're like, "Mm, how can I really put it on these kids today? You know what I want? Regular arguments. I'm looking forward to conflict. 
grounding potential belt. How old are they? I don't care. That's not how your parents wake up. In fact, they wake up just hoping they're going to make it through the day without the sassy remark that they're going to have to address, which they really don't care. They're like, you know what? Go be sassy in your own life. Figure out how that works. But they actually care about you enough to engage. Okay, now to the adults in the room. Here's a difficult one. How do you engage with your parents now that you're older? Maybe you have your own kids. Maybe you have your own grandkids, but you still have parents that are alive. How do you honor them as you've now left the house? This is difficult, especially because all of us have imperfect parents to some degree or another. All of us do. We have sinful parents who are just like us. And so you, ha- you now know as an adult, especially if you have kids, where your parents failed and how do you engage in honoring them whenever you realize that the things that maybe you're giving your kids, you didn't actually receive? Okay. Well, here's what I want to say to you. The Bible doesn't have a separate uh, category for you with a different command. Here's what, he, here's what God says to you. Honor your father and mother. That's what the Bible says. Now, how do you do that? I have four things that I hope will be helpful. Number one, as an adult, learn to empathize with your parents. And I'll tell you what the kids help that. Kids help you empathize because when you try your hand at parenting, you realize it's not as easy. It's not simple. They're like little humans who have opinions, but don't have always the smarts to have the best opinions or just not have the experience to have the best opinions. And the thing about young people, especially teenagers, is they are more opinionated than most humans. So more opinions, less experience is a train wreck for you. And now you have to parent. One way you can empathize with your parents is to remind you that you were, you were there. You were doing that to your parents. Also, remi- empathizing with your parents to know that they are sinners in need of grace. They were fallen. They were wrestling with their own issues. They were wrestling with their own relationship. And maybe w- through failure or success that they were doing what they could with the tools that were given to them. Number two, show gratitude for the good things that your parents did. You can find these. Sometimes we're blinded to them. Show gratitude to your parents for the good things that they did. Don't only have that tough conversation, say, hey, I remember this conversation that you had. I'm not saying those aren't good. Maybe you do need to have those conversations with your parents. But if you only have the ones where you sit down and say, hey, I remember whenever I was a child and you said this to me and it really hurt me, but you never say, hey, I really appreciate you for this that you did. Here's a functional one. I slept in a bed. That's a good one. Do you know that most people in human history didn't, they didn't even have that? It's like I did, my own bed, I slept on the floor. I had air conditioning. That's also just unbelievable that we get to decide what temperature it is right now. Your parents had to pay for that. Food. It's like, well, it wasn't good food, Court. It was food. Starvation's been a problem across human history for a long time. Parents trying to grapple and figure out how they can even feed their children. So you can find good things to appreciate your parents and what they did for you. Number three, be willing to hear their counsel, even if, you make, even if you're going to end up making a decision that's the exact opposite of what they say. So parents can't turn off the parent mode sometimes, and sometimes your parents, if you're an adult in the room, will offer you unsolicited advice. And by sometimes, I mean all the time. Here's the way you can honor them. Listen, thank them, consider it. Like, hey, you know how I just was talking to your children and saying, hey, maybe your parents know a little bit more than you. Hey, maybe they, your parents know a little bit more than you. Now, I'm not saying they're always right, sometimes they're wrong, and that's fine too. And you have to make that decision for your family because you do have to leave and cleave. My point is, one way you can honor them is to listen, consider, pray, and then move forward. Rather than always going, hey, uh, I don't need to hear that, I got this. Okay, number four, try to make time for them as often as possible. And how difficult is this in a time that's so busy? But try to make time for your parents as often as you can. One way that you can apply this one is the golden rule. How will you want your little ones that you're spending so much time focusing on when they they grow up and have their own family? How much are you going to want them to consider you whenever they're making their own decisions? That can help. Okay. Now, let's move on to the implicit command here. So we've talked about the kids. Paul, uh, Paul starts with the children. But there's an implicit command. If the children are meant to honor their father and mother, that means that parents are called to what? Live honorably before God and parent honorably before God. Now, what does that mean? What does that look like? I want to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, you can make a left-hand turn here. Deuteronomy chapter number 6. And I want to read a text that we quote often in our baby dedications. But I really want to spend a little time on it. Deuteronomy chapter number 6, and I'm going to start in verse 4. 
This is one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible. Jesus quoted this verse and said, this verse is what all the law and the prophets hang on. If you wanted to understand God's promises in the law and his call to obedience in the law, you would just read this verse, Jesus said, and understand it and apply it, and you would fulfill the law. It is immediately followed up with a call to parents, and that's not coincidental. So there's the command, and then there's a call to parents to teach this command to their kids. Because the commands of God, this important command of God, only carries on intergenerationally when you impart that command to your children. Let's read it, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. Verse number four, chapter six. This is Moses having entered into the promised land, and here's what God says to him. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Okay, personal responsibility. Immediately turns to verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, unto Abraham and unto Isaac and unto Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you didn't build, houses full of all the good things that you didn't fill, cisterns that you didn't dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you didn't plant. And when you eat and then you're full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's the Lord your God that you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord be kin- Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you off the face of the earth. Okay, so the greatest commandment is immediately followed by a call to teach to your til- children diligently, which is immediately followed by if you don't, this is what happens, right? Consequences. Or if you do, this is what you guard against. So let's walk through this. What does God say? He says, teach them diligently when, when you're lying down or when you rise, when you're walking by the way or when you're in your house. What does he mean? In all of your life, modeling Christ in word and in deed to your children all the time. Not like, hey, I put them in Christian school, so that was, en- that was enough. Not like, hey, I put them in a children's ministry, so hey, that was enough. Like all of your life is to be meant and to be spent regularly modeling Christ, both in word and in deed, to your children. Then he says this, binding them on your hand, it should shape everything that you do. Binding them as frontlets between your eyes, it should shape your entire worldview, and you should communicate that to your children, that worldview. Everything that you see in the world, son or daughter, should be seen through the lens of the gospel and love for the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You should write them on the doorposts of your house so it should frame your home life. The gospel itself should frame your home life. A love for God that is intense, that is white hot, should frame your home life. And you should write them on the gates of your city. The community that you're a part of, the gospel community, the church that you're a part of, should be framed by the love for the Lord your God. The gospel should frame your community. And what does this do for you? Well, the consequence of not doing this would be what, what Moses says here, which is spiritual idolatry, which means you forget the Lord your God and then you fall into the idols. And that spiritual forgetfulness is also what you're guarded against. So we guard our children against that spiritual forgetfulness that leads to idolatry when we impart the gospel to them. Now, there's four cycles the children of Israel followed from the day they entered the promised land all the way till Jesus is born. M- men, if you're, if you're in the room... Uh, the men are actually going through the book of Judges in their men's meetings throughout the, the fall. I would encourage you to check them out. It's going to be a lot of fun um, reading the book of Judges because the book of Judges is a microcosm of this where there's a four cycles that the children of Israel go through over and over and over again, and it follows suit with that verse in Deuteronomy. Here's the way it looks. The first generation are the people who see God redeem them out of the, the house, of Israel, uh, house of Egypt, and they bring them into the promised land. That generation knows God, reveres God, and honors God. But when that generation dies off, cycle number two, the next generation forgets about God, do not remember his mighty works, and they fall into idol worship and honoring all the false gods God warned them about. How does that happen? It happens because there wasn't an impartation of the gospel or the Shema into the next generation. 
So then what is cycle three? Cycle three is God sends judgment on that generation for their idolatry. It always comes in the form of oppression and suffering, but check this out. Do you ever notice in the book of Judges how that oppression and suffering comes in? God just permits them to worship the gods of the other nations and soon those nations oppress them. That's what happens. God's form of judgment is to allow them to continue on in their false worship that actually leads them to the slavery that leads to cycle number four, which is that they cry out to God and God sends a redeemer. Rinse, repeat, that's the Old Testament. Now, why does this happen? And I want to make mention of this, and then we're going to get into some practicals. I think this happens in our lives, in our culture, because while we accept our responsibility to honor God and to live our lives in a way that honors God, we believe nonsensical things about parenting. And I've heard these, and I have to address them first and foremost as a pastor. Things like, they're too young to hear about that. They don't need to be hearing about death and the cross and blood and stuff like that. Here's what I want to say. If you think that your children are too young to hear about Jesus' story, but you think they can just turn on the television and watch whatever's on the television, you are sadly mistaken. Your children are not too young to hear about the cross. In fact, it's most essential that they, are, they do. Here's another one I've heard. I want my kids to kind of find out and believe what, I don't want to be too controlling or too pushy. I want them to find out what they believe on their own, so I don't, I'm going to let them do their thing. Here's what I want to ask you. What part of parenting works that way other than that? Just give me one example. Here, let me give you a few. Um, do you ever just try to, like, let them to learn how to swim on their own, just kind of figure it out? I know there's that dad's like, that's how my daddy taught me, you know. How about this? What about driving? It's like, hey, what are you going to do with, like, teaching your kid to drive? You know, I'm just going to give him keys. It's like, go for it. Anybody? No? It didn't do that one, did we? friendships it's like they hit their sister are you going to talk to him about it? it's like no i'm just gonna honestly i'm just gonna let them figure this thing out i'm just gonna let them punch each other some more who knows what might happen i'm gonna watch some tv though it's gonna be fun i don't think you can name a significant thing in parenting that works out through laissez-faire well i just want them to kind of figure it out on their own and here's what i want to tell you Number one, God doesn't say that's not what we ought to do. God says we ought to take serious this call that as they're underneath our household, that we have a responsibility to impart. And I think the enemy loves this idea because if there is one disposition that your child has from birth, it's the same one that you and I both had from birth. And it's called sin that leads us away from God, not towards God. So Satan loves this because he just stands there with arms wide open. It's like laissez-faire parenting. Bring it. I love it. Because they're just, on a, they're just on a raft heading straight to him. And we take this in our Western context as this is tolerant, this is good, this is kind to our children. We're going to let them figure it out. It's like, no, that's sexually abusive. You don't let children figure things out when you live in a dangerous world. And we've been convinced that we don't live in a dangerous world, and yet everything around us communicates that. It's why we had to wear masks for like the last two years. Because we're living in a dangerous world full of sickness. And we're saying, well, we'll just let our kids figure it out. I just want to tell you that's not wise. The truth of God tells us, no, we actually have to take responsibility and lead our children into life. And so that leads me to this last point or this last portion, which is if parenting is about modeling the character of Christ in order to prepare your child for a life of joyful obedience to Jesus, then what are some principles that we can apply in order to do so, like in order to instruct them? Here's what I'll say. I think that love is the operative tool through which you should instruct and parent your kids. The reason I say that is because that's what Jesus did. And it's what the Shema says. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I think that love is the operative way that you parent. Now, the big question is how do you love and what does love mean? All right, if you're a note taker, this is for you. I have 10 points. Going to be quick. It's going to be beautiful. All right, let's do it. Number one, love your kids by telling them the truth. Love your kids by telling them the truth. We honor God and our children by raising them in the truth. It's not, it's not a loving thing to lie to your kids to preserve their feelings. I need to say that again. It's not loving to lie to your children to preserve their feelings. Now, there are truths that you're going to offer your older kid that you're not going to offer your younger kid yet. Don't get me wrong, okay? Got a, got a little toddler. It's not good to talk about the Trinity yet, okay? Let's just talk about God made the world. But, but, 
Nonetheless, love cannot be divorced from truth. And if you think that you can love without truth, you're sadly mistaken. Your kids need to know the truth about God and the truth about the gospel. Your kids need to know the truth about life as God designed it. Your kids need to know the truth about the world and culture and what's going on and how they should see it. The truth about relationships and sexuality, the truth about pain and suffering, the truth about wisdom and folly. The parent that withholds truth from their children when it's necessary doesn't protect them. They rob them of having the tools to grapple with life in a fallen world together. Or in other words, they just, pres- they just push the suffering down the road for later. If you say, I'm protecting my kids right now, here's what you're doing. You're just pushing it down for later when actually there's more cost to it. There's more consequence. If they can feel their feelings hurt with you and then you can love them and bring them in, that can be restored. But later on, the suffering that will come if they didn't know what was right and wrong is, is astronomically worse. Truth provides the boundary lines and the rule book that our kids need to know in order to engage with the very serious game called life. If we don't offer truth, we're going to have a tough time with discipline and consequences because the boundaries aren't clear and the rules will seem arbitrary. So we set now ourselves to tell our kids the truth because we love them. All right, number two, love your kids by instructing them in wisdom. So like not everything in life is black and white. I know some of our personalities are like, oh no, I got a rule for everything. Um, it's not always like that, right? And the honorable parent speaks clearly and directly about the things that we know to be true. And then they offer wisdom and insight about the things that aren't so obvious. I want to give you an example. Um, my wife and I with our kids, we got a chance to visit my grandmother this last week. She's 91 years old. And I hadn't seen her in almost two years because of the coronavirus, you know, and it's very scary. And so anyhow, we got to see her and it was great. And we were talking about some of her neighbors and she calls uh, one of her neighbors, the young man that moved in next door. And this the young man, 70, by the way, I'm not kidding you. He's 70, but she's like the young man that moved in. He's a sweet boy. <laughs> and uh, anyway, talking about that people in the community had moved in and that they had started to dig their water wells. And she had said, I had told them they don't need to dig any deeper than 55 feet. If you dig deeper than 55 feet, you're going to get into that shale and it's, that water's going to be smelling and it's going to have sediment. And it's going to be trouble. And listen, if you're from Houston and you dug your own well, you know 55 feet is really shallow. Like that, that's unheard of. But she said that, and I remember thinking, like, she's crazy. There's no way. That's not good. Well, lo and behold, what she said is that they all dug their wells deeper, and they said they were going to get artesian wells and all of these things. And in the end, they had smelly water and minerals in their water and all kinds of stuff. She said, I told them, you know, and she said that they would come over. And, of course, she's kind. You know, they would, they would complain to her about the water, and she wouldn't say anything. And then they'd leave. She goes, well, you know, those foolish boys, that's what she said. Our kids need to understand things about life that you've learned through experience. Children need to understand money. They need to understand how to form healthy relationships. They need to be taught about work and rewards and rest and recreation and how that should be operated in. They need to learn how to discern a fraud from a friend. You know how you learned that? A fraud got the best of you and pretended to be a friend. And you know how you learned, probably? You learned to be able to actually be trusting but verify that they're not frauds. Children need to be taught the difference between being generous and being gullible. You ever learned that lesson? My first trip to San Francisco, California, I was watching as they were doing this. Uh, these guys on the street were doing the, there's a bead ball and there's three cups and they do this and then you get to choose. And, you know, and if you pick the one with the ball in it, then you win the money. Or if you don't, then you lose the money. And uh, there's a bunch of people around. It's all around. And I picked the right one every time just watching. And so then at the end of it, I was like, oh, I got this. And I put down the money that I had for the trip. And I hit the cup and lifted it up. And he swiped the money out of my hand before I could even know and went on dealing with it. And I remember just being shocked. Oh, my gosh. You know what I found out later? We went and had some dinner, came back, and all of those people who were in the crowd, yeah, 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 losing money, they were all in on the game together. I was the only one that was unaware that I wasn't a part of the game. They just shared the money they got from gullible people like me. You know how I learned that? I lost my money for that trip. You know what I don't want my son to do? Lose his money for the trip, okay? So what should I do? I should instruct him in wisdom, which is God's call on our lives. Okay, number three, love your kids by disciplining them. That means requiring their obedience. The idols of comfort and approval can severely hinder you as a parent. You can't fall prey to the belief that every uncomfortable situation that your children gets themselves into is the time for you to come in and rescue them. And you should not, listen to me, you should not try to soothe your own need for approval and your own need for comfort with your children. Because here's the truth, your, parents, your kids need you to be their parent, not their friend. 
They need you to parent them and to help them find friends, but you can't be their friend yet. Here's what I'll say. If you try to be their friend now, you will lose that friendship later in life when they become adults because they won't actually have the framework through which they could understand that friendship. But if you decide to parent them now, you might have a great friend when they're an adult later. But don't try to do that now. Children need to know the difference between good and evil, right and wrong. And the only way to preserve them from experiencing the brutal consequences of evil later in life is to provide for them a tempered and wise set of consequences for good and evil inside your house. Here's what I mean. If your child makes a mistake by punching their sibling, I know this from experience, in your household, that looks like timeout or a privilege taken. If they make a mistake at 17 by punching someone or like their teacher, that looks like jail time in either juvie or real penitentiary. Which one would you prefer? I would prefer shaping this right here whenever you sock your sibling so that you don't lose your temper and your anger later in a situation where the consequences are greater. Does this make sense? I could do this all day long talking about how you as a parent, you have these boundary lines that you created and you have this training ground in your home where now the consequences that you're providing for them, although they're very real and they feel like the whole world's falling in on them at the time, they're very tempered in their light compared to what might happen if they don't learn it right now. Now, of course, discipline should scale in proportion to the freedom that we give our children as they grow. So the more freedom children are given as they grow up, the more responsibility is required of their right choices. So timeouts that toddlers receive whenever they do wrong with the little responsibility that they've been given will become grounding and loss of privileges as the child grows. Discipline doesn't stop, it just changes, and it should change. But the big point is to recognize that requiring obedience is not an evil thing, it's the right thing, because what it does is train and shape our children for the good. Number four, okay, this one will be more more popular. Love your kids by showing them grace. The gospel cannot be imparted merely through the law, whether me preaching it or you parenting it. So obedience to God's commands, they do lead to life, but here's what the Bible tells us, is that you and I both know that we're lawbreakers, right? So guess what? You have little lawbreakers in your house, okay? They're tiny, they can't say as many words, they still are lawbreakers. So you need to be able to figure out ways to teach them that although our fallen nature ensures failure to live up to God's commands, that God's provided grace for us in Christ, and the best way to do that is to figure out not only how to set the rules, but also how to extend the grace and the forgiveness. Listen, perfectionist parents do equal harm to their children that permissive parents do. They're just, they're just the different side of the evil coin. A permissive parent sets no rules, but a perfectionist parent has a rule for everything and no grace. And the gospel provides another way. Teach your children what Jesus is like by forgiving them and showing them grace. Okay, number five, love your kids by providing for their needs. I'm not going to spend much time on this one, but I think it's important to, man- to mention. It's not right or God-honoring to expect your children to be your providers. You've been entrusted by God to provide for their needs. Now, we've swung the pendulum really far on this, and we think that it's our responsibility to give our kids everything they want. And I would say that's also, that's also folly. But we should provide for our children's needs, and I mean that both physically, emotionally, psychologically, and most importantly, spiritually. We need to be in tune with what those needs are and we need to meet those needs. Number six, love your kids by praying for them and praying with them. Love your kids by praying for them and praying with them. Nothing communicates the ultimate authority and loving kindness of God to our kids like when we pray with them and pray for them. So we're not God to our children, but we are called to be examples of God to them. Sometimes we remember to pray for our kids whenever it gets to desperation, but we've forgotten that it's the regular continual prayers of the parent that leads up to the desperation that actually prepares you for how to handle it when it comes. This is one of some of my favorite things to do with my kids. Right now, my son, when he prays, uh, you guys know that he has a little bit of a speech delay. He has two major things he's praying for. He's praying for a friend of ours who has a sick uh, child, and he's praying that God would give him a spaceship. Those are his two things. And I kid you not, they're, re- they're regular every night. There's nothing more delightful than being able to encourage to teach them how to pray. And then also, when you're alone with your spouse, to pray for them. Because what you're recognizing is that God is their God, and you need help. Number seven, love your kids by repenting to them when you're wrong. This one's tough, but it's a sad day when parents forget or neglect to come back after a confrontation or an argument to repent for the times where they've fallen short of their call as parents and to repent to their kids. It can create a lot of bitterness in your child when they become older and this never happens. 
because what they think as they get older is that my parents have all these principles and standards that they themselves don't follow. I know what you're thinking as a parent. You're probably thinking, if I do this, it's going to undermine my authority, and they're just going to hold it against me. Here's what I'll say. In In most situations, this act of humility will build trust in your relationship with your child because they'll see that you honor God and you actually practice what you preach. Okay, number eight, love your kids by spending time with them. Time is the precious commodity that all of us have been given the exact same amount of by God. So our bank accounts may differ, but we all have the exact same watch. And so the encouragement here is, especially when your children are young and the bills keep coming and you got school and you got recitals, you got practices, you got competitions, you got holidays, you got church events, and it's all piling up on you, do everything you can to spend time with your children because the older that they get, the less they like hanging with you. So as much as you can, as much as humanly possible for the short years that you have, try to prioritize the time with our kids. Number nine, love your kids by prioritizing your spouse. Love your kids by prioritizing your spouse. Healthy marital relationships flow directly from healthy relationships with God. So it follows that healthy parental relationships flow directly from healthy marital relationships. Do you guys see that line of authority? So we often neglect our spouse because we got the children chattering around the house, and rightly so because they have a lot of needs, right? So the attention goes there. But here's the reminder. The greatest gift that you can give your child is parents who love God and love one another deeply because then they get welcomed into that. When we neglect our spouse, we often begin to create teams unknowingly in our own households, and our kids pick up on this, and they find ways to pick the teams and to pick the coaches that best align with their priorities. Our kids are the best politicians. They figure out which parent that they can talk to, which parent they can, you know, Dad, I've been thinking about this. It's like, well, have you talked to your dad about that? Or have you talked to your mom about that? Oh, yeah, you know, but she just doesn't understand like you. Unity in the household is not something you're given on a silver platter. It's something that you fight for with your spouse. And kids that know that mom and dad love each other first, they get to experience the joy of what that loving relationship provides. Okay, last one, number 10. Love your kids by prioritizing gospel community. Love your kids by prioritizing gospel community. Christianity is not a solo project, but guess what? Parenting isn't either. Not only do you need godly influences in your children's lives at all ages, but you also need people in your life who are willing to stand side by side, shoulder to shoulder with you in the trenches and fight with you and for you when times get tough. That's what gospel community is. Lastly, as your kids get older, there are a few things that are going to be more important than the friends that they choose to be around because the third-party influence with your teen is going to be the most important influence. And so listen, I'm not advocating for you to choose your, your teenager's friends, and if you have a teenager, you're probably already way out ahead of that, so that doesn't work well. Here's what I'll advocate for is that gospel community provides the environment through which they can build friendships and that God can do the miraculous work of building friendships with people who have the same values. Listen to me. When your kid's best friend doesn't know or love Jesus and their parents don't value the same things that you value, you are setting your family up for a lot of arguments and disunity. And I'm not saying that that means that they have to cut off their friend and call their friend, hey, Billy, you're going to hell, so we can't be friends. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you as a parent, you have to be able to look out over that and to recognize that it's important, the friendships that they keep, that those are meaningful things. Okay. Now, verse 4, as we close, What does Paul say at the very end here towards parents? Verse 4 in Ephesians chapter 6, he speaks to fathers and he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now there's two things here, and I'm going to address both. But the first one is, I believe that Paul's picking up on something that we all know intuitively, but especially men we don't want to admit, which is that we have a propensity and a tendency to pass the buck to our wives in the parenting department at times. And that we can say, well, you know, the child comes to ask, and like, what did your mom say? I don't know, ask your mom. She knows, she knows where that thing is. She knows the answer to that. Go talk to her. I'm watching the game. Get out of the house. Go play. Go have fun. And he's saying, no, fathers, if you're going to lead, this is where you lead to. Instruct, discipline. Don't always kick the discipline to your wife and say, hey, she's, she, you know, mom's going to handle you in the room in there. I got a beer to drink. Whatever it may be. But I also want to say here that the word fathers is commonly translated, like in Hebrews 11, verse 23, the Greek word, it's commonly translated as parents. So I think it's not just saying that fathers can provoke their children and they can also, 
But I think that what Paul's saying here is that parents need to focus on not provoking their children to anger, but instructing them. Now, I know what you're thinking, especially if you have kids. The kids provoke me to anger. I do not provoke them to anger. They've been provoking me for years, and they don't know how close I am to breaking, you know? Okay. I think there's two major ways. These are more theoretical than they are at Boots on the Ground. Two major ways that we provoke our children to anger. Number one, we provoke our children to anger when we smother them with overbearing parenting. And we provoke our children to anger when we abandon them with permissive parenting. So we provoke our children to anger when we have a rule for everything. We are always right. We're, you know, we're only a hammer and we always find a nail. And we also provoke our children to anger whenever we just say, you know what, do what you want. Don't ever give them guidance. Don't ever give them time. Don't ever give them care. Don't ever give them discipline. Don't ever give them the boundaries that you think is going to hurt their feelings, but really they long for. And we just kind of let everything happen. That also provokes your children to anger. And listen to me, you might not think they're angry now. They'll be angry later because they'll realize what you didn't offer so that you could feel better about being their friend. All right, now I want to, just as we ended last week by saying this, all of us sat here last week and I said, hey, every one of us sits here as the bride today and Jesus is our groom. Well, I want to finish by saying this, every one of us sits here today as a child and God is our father. So we come now here in all of our own frailty, in all of our own imperfection, and in all of our ways that we don't honor our parents well, in all the ways that we don't parent our children well, in all the areas that we need God's strength, we need his forgiveness, we need his help, and we also need his grace. And we come to our Father who abundantly provides. I want to read to you 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, and then pray. This is what John says. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is because it didn't know him. But beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But what we know is that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Listen to me. God is a loving father. He's adopted you into his family because of the blood that was shed by your older brother, Christ. And if you're not a Christian this morning, you haven't trusted Christ. This is an invitation from your father into his family because if you've had the worst family in the world, you have now been offered the adoption into a perfect family with a good father. But here's what I'll also say. When we hear these things and they sting a little bit, remember that our father also exercises discipline and he also wants us to grow into his image and likeness so that when we see him face to face, we'll be made like him. So how will we grow this morning? Where will we submit to our father as he lays discipline on us and says, hey, here's where you're off base. Maybe it's going to be a phone call to our own parents. Maybe it's going to be a sitting down with our own children. Maybe it's just talking with our spouse tonight over dinner and saying, how can we engage in these ways with our own children? Whatever it may be, let us hear our father's words and let us honor our father who's in heaven. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Father, I'm so, I'm humbled and grateful because I know that there is just an abundant, where sin has abounded, grace has abounded all the more. That in this room, all of the heavy hearts that may feel the pain of their own parents not being for them what they were meant to be, or the pain of not being parents to their children as they were meant to be, or the pain of the family dynamic being broken, that your grace abounds all the more. And that you're here to meet us, that you're here to not only make us whole, but to transform us. And so, Holy Spirit, would you do that work now? As we take of your supper, would you provide the sustenance and the strength that we need to be who you've called us to be? As we sing in worship, may our mouths agree with what our hearts long for, which is to honor you, Father. Even as you have called us to honor our earthly parents, we love you. We trust you. May the families of Providence display the glories that only exist in the power, the mercy, and the majesty of your gospel. We trust you and we ask this in Jesus' name.